Before we uh, pray today, I'm going to open up the altars for anybody who wants to come. You've got a burdened heart. You don't have to tell anybody. Just come, kneel before the Lord, and unburden your heart before Him. If you've got somebody on your mind, come to the altar and pray for them. Or gather up around them if they are here. And uh, let's spend some time praying for one another. The Bible says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And that's one of the reasons that we're here, to help you. And uh, if you want somebody to pray with you, all you have to do is ask somebody who is sitting around you and they'll be happy to pray with you and to pray for you uh, during this time. This is time to unburden our heart. And I know that uh, for most of us, we've got um, Bob Hooker on our mind today. He has been, uh, he's tested positive for covid and so we uh, certainly want to pray for him. And then we want to pray for our students as they get ready to go to camp this week. And we're praying that God will do some very powerful, supernatural works in their lives to save those who are lost and then to fortify those who are saved. Because we do live in this present evil age and bombarded by so much. And uh, we want to pray for them and pray for all of the sponsors and certainly for uh, Isaac and Jenny as they go down there. And then we want to remember to pray for John Hall. He buried his mother on Friday. And we want to ask God to comfort him and strengthen him. And probably there's somebody on your row that needs prayer and is going through something right now. Or somebody that you know of somewhere else. So let's come to the altar. Let's gather around people. And let's get ready to spend some time in prayer on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ whom we love. Okay? And during this time as well, if there's somebody that you have on your heart today and you want to just... Shoot them a text and just say, I love you and I'm praying for you right now. That would be an appropriate thing to do. Or tell them your church family's praying for you. People love to hear that type of thing and they love to know that they're being thought of. Okay. Ready? Okay, let's pray. Father, so many things come on our minds today at a time like this. And we want to ask you, Lord, to forgive us of the sins of our nation. We think about the sexual perversions. We think about greed and materialism. We think about all of the false religion and false doctrine that we buy into. We think, Lord, about uh, the killing of innocent babies in their mother's wombs. We think about all of the crime. With so many shootings lately. Every time we turn around... There's somebody being shot and killed somewhere, even in our own state lately. Father, we pray that you would please heal our, the sick soul of America. And we pray you would use us to do it. And may we, as the people of God, refuse to participate in the things that are feeding the monster, feeding the depravity of our land. May we stand in holiness and in power, in truth and in justice and in rightness, and also, Lord, in grace and mercy and in the gospel. And we pray, Father, that you would do a work of grace and salvation in the halls of our government, whether they are federal or state and local. And we pray that even, Lord, as we think about our own mayor and city council and school board. Oh, God, please save them and sanctify the saved. Give them wisdom and help us, Lord. We are uh, tempted to say bless us, but we really need to say help us, Lord. We're unworthy of any blessings. Please help us and shed your grace upon us. And Lord, for youth camp, I pray for safety, not just for our church, for all of the churches that will be going. And I pray for salvation for all of the students that will be there. I pray for wisdom and grace and discernment for all of the sponsors. I pray for things to go well. I pray for things to be smooth and ordered. I pray that the preaching would be anointed and the same with the music. And I pray, Lord, that you would at this particular gathering of 
of uh, teenagers. I pray you would start a fire that would spread and touch the whole state and the nation and even the world for the glory of God. And we pray your blessings upon them. We pray for the Bob Hooker. Oh, Lord, please heal that brother and help him as he goes through these 10 days of being quarantined in his room or solitary, solitary confinement, as it seems like. Help him. Lift his spirits. Let him know he's loved. And let the time pass by quickly and profitably. And for John Hall and others who are grieving today, we thank you that you are near to the brokenhearted. And we're so grateful for that. And you said that you won't overlook a broken heart in Psalm 51. And I pray, Lord, that they would experience your comfort and grace and mercy even now as we pray for them. Not to mention, Lord, parents who are grieving over rebellious children. People who are brokenhearted because they are estranged from their spouse. We pray for children who are at odds with their parents. And uh, we pray, Father, that you would heal us and heal our homes and heal our brokenness. Provide jobs for people who need them. And we pray, Lord, that you would give friends to those who are lonely. And we pray that in all of these things we would see the good hand of our God providing for all of our needs according to his riches in glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Yay. Thank you so much. We're going to uh, take a look at something today that uh, I think is extremely, extremely critical in our world. And we're going to look a little bit at the uh, life of David. And the thing struck me that David is so highly thought of, so well respected. He's held up as uh, an amazing king in the Bible. In fact, isn't it interesting that when Jesus Christ is described as a king, he's the king who will rule on the throne of whom? His father David. David is quite a standard, respected and loved. The greatest king that Israel ever had. <coughs> Everywhere but at home. He had a wife, Saul's daughter, uh, Michal, some say Michael, uh, Michal, who hated him. You think about from his own family, the greatest threats to his kingdom. He had a son, Amnon, who raped his half-sister, Tamar, both of them David's kids by different mothers. You have Absalom in uh, response to what David didn't do during that time. That David had to run for his life. Literally run for his life. And Absalom was so corrupt and had such contempt for his father. <coughs> that when he was able to run David out of Jerusalem. He took over the palace and had sexual relations with David's concubines. You don't, you don't get more contemptible and showing your contempt than to do something like that. And yet David loved Absalom and mourned deeply over his death when uh, I believe it was Joab that killed him. And then you think about uh, he had another son. And when David's on his deathbed, this son goes ahead and throws a feast, invites important people to the feast, and declares himself to be king. And his father has not even passed away yet. And it also is in distinction, uh, contradiction to what his father has said. That's just a few of the things that went on in David's home. Boy, that was a happy palace, wasn't it? And I wondered, how could somebody who did so many things so right turn out to be so wrong where it really mattered? And then I thought, that's not all that uncommon, is it? We find people that come to the highest office in our land. Commander-in-chief of our military, the head of state. And yet some of them have had, well, do you remember when President Reagan was in office? And he had a daughter that posed for Playboy just to spit in his face. You wonder sometimes what happens. When some of these powerful people that the world would bow and scrape to and the world speaks in, 
in measured tones to them. And you wonder what it's like when their own children have zero or little respect for them. How awful it probably is behind closed doors. And we can think about those kind of things with actors and actresses and other entertainers. People will pay huge sums of money and fill up stadiums to hear them and sing and see them. And yet they can't keep a relationship together. They don't have a good relationship with their children. They're on multiple marriages, things like that. How does that kind of thing happen? Well, over the last few weeks since Mother's Day, we've been talking about some things that kind of help us with some of these issues. On Mother's Day, May 8th, we looked at Psalm 139 and compared that to the transgender movement. And that was uh, to bless all of you, uh, we're not supposed to say mothers, all of you birthing persons over here. And then on May 15th, we looked at Romans chapter 12 and we talked about how love can be hypocritical and how we stumble the upcoming generations. And then on May 22nd, we just uh, tried to answer the question, why does God forbid sex outside of marriage? What's the big deal? Is it, I mean, it's just biology, isn't it? Now, there are some big problems that it causes. And then um, May 29th, we looked at 10 consequences of adultery. Well, today I want to take some instances out of the life of David and talk about uh, four things that I see families facing today, just like back in uh, his day, a thousand years before Christ. And uh, I want you to think about this. How many parents do you know that show just disinterest in their children? Now, it could be that when their children are playing ball, there's a lot of interest there. But when their kids are facing day-to-day -day life and trouble, no interest. I've got bigger things to do. No time. Do, yeah, go away. Do whatever. Work it out yourselves. That type of stuff. Daddy, do you think I ought to do this? I don't really care what you do with your hair or anything like that. Just I'm trying to read the paper. Disinterest, a lot of disinterest. Not to mention, you get into certain situations where you find kids who, they don't know who their father is. That's the height of disinterest, isn't it? Or mom doesn't care whether I'm running the streets or doing drugs. She's doing her own things and has her own problems. The height of disinterest. Children are made with this innate desire for the interest of their parents. Proof? How many times have you seen a little toddler when they're doing something that you know, everybody does, but they say what? Watch me. Watch me. What? And they bug you to death until you finally acknowledge what they're doing on the swing set or on the trampoline or just walking across the floor or doing a somersault or whatever. Why? God made them to crave the attention and the approval of their parents and it doesn't take long when that doesn't happen that they uh, look where anywhere they can find it anywhere they can find it so if mom and dad don't really care but this gang says that they will care and they will protect me and they will be a friend and they'll uh, that's gonna happen or if it's in a sexual relationship outside of marriage and way too early but I found love and I found acceptance and I found affirming words that I didn't get from my parents. And on and on and on we could go. Disinterest. Then I want you to think about something else. The word defilement comes to mind. How many things go on in our homes that your grandmother, your grandmother would be absolutely embarrassed by and that she would be uh, upset with you about and yet it goes on in your home and it's no big deal there are times when we've heard stories thinking about one man in particular that was running uh, around with his dad and his dad parked and left this son as a little boy in the car while he went up and committed adultery with a mistress think that has an effect you think that uh, pornography and when your kids find your stash or see you involved in it, you think that has any problems? Do you think that when 
mom cheats on dad and it comes out and dad and mom are at each other and there are all kinds of stories and rumors and problems and what's going on and why, why are we being like this? You think that doesn't have an effect? Defilement. Defilement can have a huge impact on uh, people's lives. And then how many parents do you know that when er something ever comes up, maybe at school, maybe with other kids playing or something like that, and something comes up about uh, something that happened, and how many parents do you know that go, oh, my kid would never do that? I heard someone say, not too long ago. Well, one thing I know about my child is they would never lie to me. Okay? That's a lie, by the way. Doesn't happen. And people with this delusion that their children are little angels. And well, we've taught our child better than that. They would never do that. How many of you did things that you were taught not to do? Don't raise your hand. Right? That's the root of sin, isn't it? We all do things that we're taught not to do and we're not supposed to do, and so they don't get dealt with. And then how many parents do you know that consider that disciplining their child, well, that's mean. That's cruel. Well, I don't want to be abusive and I don't want to squelch them when actually discipline is the height of love. To care enough and the love enough to confront and change and teach your child how to be responsible, how to be kind, how to be loving, how to treat other people, what to do and what not to do, how to determine what's right from wrong and how to think. Now, obviously, you can do that in a wrong way, in an abusive way, and we would certainly never, ever ascribe to anything like that, but a very loving thing. And what I've just given you is the outline for this morning from the life of David. So let's take a look at some things and let's uh, think about David respected everywhere but his home and all of those things that we mentioned that happened to him, even up to the point of him being on his deathbed. I don't know about you, but when I picture if I could write the script, I would like to be on my deathbed free of pain and thinking about angels and heaven and that kind of stuff with uh, my wife and my children and my grandchildren all around me telling me how much they love me, how they respect me. And, and when the angels call me out, I go out with a loving expression of my family. Wouldn't that be great? And yet David didn't even get that. David, the man after God's own heart, didn't even get that. While he is dying, he's got a son plotting to take over the kingdom, and his dad's not even dead yet. Well, let's talk about these things. First of all, let's talk about distraction. Now, for this, I don't actually have a story or an antidote from the life of David. I'm just going to kind of make a little bit of a guess. And part of my guess is based upon what I find in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 28. It says, Then David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God and had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. Now, there are two ways we can take that. Uh, we can either go, Well, God is a God of peace and he didn't like David because he did all of that. Well, then you have to deal with the fact that God led David into those wars and David had a country that he had to unite, first of all. All of the 12 tribes of Israel had to be united. They were very divided. And then he also had to make sure that they were protected and the land that God gave them was protected from their enemies. And so he was very, very busy. And it's almost as if God was saying to him, David, no, it's not time for that yet. Your son will be a man of peace. The borders, will be, the borders will be set. Everything will be ready. And he can take time to do that. You can't take time to do anything else except take care of all of this. And I think that that second explanation is what is proper there, the best way to understand it. David, 
You're a warrior. That's your assignment. That's your job. That's what you have to do to make sure this nation is set and established and can survive. If that's the case, I wonder how many times David had PTSD. My brother came home from Iraq and he had a pretty good case of it. And one of the things that uh, he told me was that after he had been over there and been in a war zone, had important assignments and all that type of stuff that he did, he came home and going to work just seemed trivial. The stuff that the kids watched on TV seemed so silly. The stuff that they got upset about and thought about was just plain stupid, he said. He said, I just looked at life and I saw meaning in Iraq and what I did over there and everything here was just meaningless. Don't bother me. And it wasn't until his wife had a really, really stern uh, confrontation with him by his own admission that it woke him up and he saw that he was losing everything everything that he had been fighting for I wonder how many times David came back he had been fighting a war an important war against the Philistines his battle clothes were stained with blood his sword had blood stains on it and then he came back and little Absalom is upset because somebody else took his hot wheels His daughter said, somebody else wore my top without asking me. Can you imagine what David would say or think about all of that? Being described like he was here as a man who wanted to build the temple of God. And God said, no, you've got other things you have to take care of. I wonder if when we look at David and we see that at the root, at least partially, of some of these things going on in his family is David always had bigger and better things to deal with than what was going on in his own house. I wonder if that's why presidents have so much trouble. I wonder if that's why actors and entertainers have so much trouble. I wonder if that's what happens to businessmen and women. Uh, They get so busy. I made million-dollar deals, and you want me to figure out a kid's allowance? I speak on the job or in the military or in my government position and everybody jumps and I come home and they all just look at me and then go back to what they were doing before. I wonder if that's kind of the stuff that was going on in David's home. And the reason I'm saying that is I think there's a really good possibility that David just didn't have a whole lot of time or interest in his children because... All of the things that you find that we're supposed to do for our children just didn't quite take place. Moses said you're supposed to teach your children to me when you're standing, sitting, coming in, going out. Remember that in Deuteronomy? In other words, every part of life is supposed to be an illustration and a teaching time to bring up the Lord and bring up what the Lord says and bring up what the Word of God says. But David had bigger fish to fry. He had other things that he needed to do. How many times have we seen that? What about a parent that the only time that they ever really have anything spiritual that relates to the Lord is when they come to church, when and if they come to church, drop their kids off, send their kids to camp, but that's, that's really about it, and that's really, they think, about all their kids need to do because there are many more important things. And so they magnify sports in the eyes of their kids. They magnify making money in the eyes of their kids. They magnify all of these kind of things and then wonder why their kids don't love Jesus, don't love the Word, don't love church. They wonder, disinterest. You've got to be interested in your kids and in the right things. And sometimes that means what they're interested in, whether you're interested or not, be in there involved with them because it's important to them. And it also means you've got to shepherd them and guide them into the things that really are important. Be careful what you model as important. Apparently, David's sons knew how to fight, but they didn't know how to worship. 
Number two, I want you to think about defilement, and you know exactly where I'm going with this. The Bible tells us, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel 11, and just notice some things here as we read. It happened in the spring of the year. Why does that matter? It doesn't to us. But the next phrase tells us why it would matter to the original readers. At the time when kings go to battle. They didn't fight in the winter. That's a relatively recent thing. A lot of times wars would be called off for the winter. And then in the spring they would pick them up again. Pick up where they left off. When kings go to battle. Well where's David? David sent Joab. He didn't go to battle like he's supposed to. And his servants with him. And all Israel... And they destroyed the people of Ammon and uh, besieged Rabbah. But, see the contrast there? But, but, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now it doesn't tell us why. Maybe he got lazy. Maybe he decided this is such an easy battle, I don't really need to show up. Joab can handle it. And apparently they did. They had some success. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen is for you to do something wrong and be successful at it, right? David's just staying home, taking it easy, remaining in Jerusalem. And verse 2 says, then it happened. We could stop right there, couldn't we? Then it happened. Oh. And David's life has changed for the rest of his life. And his family has changed. Then it happened one evening... That David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. Nothing wrong with that. No sin in that. And because the palace was usually built up higher than everything else, he could look down on his kingdom. Well, this particular night, he looked down and uh, what happened? Well, it was typical for people to bathe up on their roof because in most situations, that's private. Unless the king is looking. Your neighbors couldn't see you, but the king could. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. Okay, now here's what strikes me about that. At this point, it's no longer private. At this point, it's not just an illicit thought. As bad as that may be, but it's no longer private. Now, how long do you think something like this is going to remain private? Even with these people. You know what I did today? You're not going to believe this. right? Well, then it gets worse. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba? the daughter of some names that are very difficult to pronounce, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers. Notice the plural there. He inquired with some. Now he's sending messengers. These messengers know. These messengers know. Do you think servants keep their mouth shut? Or do you think maybe they talk? Do you think maybe word spreads very quickly? The messengers went and they, look at this, they took her. I don't know, this seems like a little bit worse than adultery to me. What choice does she have? And she came to him and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And I've always found that a little bit ironic and funny, not ha-ha, but funny weird. David? You're really concerned about her being cleansed from her impurity when you're committing adultery and getting ready to commit murder? What about your heart and its impurity? That's where the battle really was. And she may have been cleansed, but he certainly wasn't. And yet he's going to play the game. I'm getting ready to sin, a horrible sin, but let's make sure we follow the rules about your cleansing. Silly. And she returned to her house. No big deal. Verse 5. 
And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, and said, I am with child. Okay, I want you to just put yourself in David's shoes. What do you think it felt like to get that word? How do you think David acted? How hard did he have to work to cover up his fear, his emotions, and all of that? And all the while, among the servants and among others, those messengers and others, it's going on. It's not a secret. It's not a secret. Defilement. How do you think those messengers thought about David the next, started to say Sunday, the next Saturday when they went to the temple. The rabbi says, Today we shall read a poem and sing a song written by our great godly king. Can you imagine those servants who say, Yeah, right. Can you imagine David as they did all of that? Boy, it's hard to worship when you're in sin. In fact, it's impossible. Defilement entered the house. And as a result of that, go on down to 2 Samuel 22.10. And when Nathan confronts David, I mean, he's kind enough to say, God's forgiven your sin because that's the nature of God. But consequences are going to remain. Now, therefore... The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The sword will not depart from your house. How would you interpret that if somebody said that to you? Now, if I were David, I think my initial thing would be, oh, going to have to keep fighting Philistines, huh? Going to have to keep fighting Hittites and Perizzites and all of those kind of things. Okay, well, uh, I did it and uh, I'm ready to go. I don't think David at that point had a clue that what that meant was people in your own household among your own children are going to be murdered. People in your own household are going to take up the sword and commit treason and mutiny against you where you're going to have to literally run for your life. I don't think you had a clue on that. Because we rarely do have a clue as to what sin is going to say. Oh, we glibly say sin will cost you, take you where you never wanted to go, cost you more than you wanted to pay, and keep you longer than you ever want to stay. And we say amen to that. But we never really get it. Never really get it. How sin affects us intergenerationally. The sins of the fathers are visited on the third and the fourth generation. How it changes us and our walk with God and our relationship with other people. It just does. And how that affects the way our children see us and, and affects the way our lives go on. Well, that happened for David. The sword didn't depart from his house. And there were some horrible, horrible things that happened because of all of this. Number three, I want you to notice David kind of lived under a delusion. And that delusion led to defiance. He had a son named Amnon. And Amnon had a half-sister, Tamar, who was very beautiful. And Amnon lusted after his sister and figured out a way to where he could rape her. You say, well, this is all disgusting. That's why it's in there. It's supposed to disgust you. It was disgusting to everybody. This is a horrible thing. This has taken place in the household of David, a man after God's own heart who wrote most of the Psalms. Why? Because if you're not very interested in your kids in the way you should be, and then when you get to the point to where you think you can bring defilement into your home and into your family and there not be any consequences, you're kidding yourself. And the main thing that I find about his delusion in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 21, 
It says, when King David heard of all these things, Amnon's rape of Tamar, he became very angry. Well, he should have been. I think that would be a righteous anger. If that happened in your home, I would expect you to be angry about it. But this next thing just kills me. But he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him. Just stop and think about that. That's David's explanation, by the way. That's not a biblical explanation. I just love him too much. I could never do that to him. I don't know if David had anger issues. I don't know if he is afraid with all of his strength and with his military skill he might actually do something that would harm the child. I get that. But just to say, oh, I just love him so much I could never do anything like that. Look what's happened now. You take a kid and you go, I could never deny them. I could never see them hurt. Oh, I just have to give in and all of that. You were doing it to the destruction of your child as an adult. The home is that place where they are supposed to learn to deny themselves. They learn to follow the rules. They learn to respect authority. All of those kind of things. Well, that never happened here. I get the idea that with Amnon, this was, this was a pattern. Amnon is used to getting what he wants even if it's an incestuous relationship with his sister. It doesn't matter. I want it! I can hear him saying that when he's two. And I hear him saying this even as an adult. But I want it! And that's the way so many people live in our country now. But I want it! And the government says, here, we'll give it to you if you'll vote for us. And we don't understand how stupid we are. And how we're being bought and we're exchanging our freedom for things and stuff and money. There's a price to pay. Well, that's Amnon. He wanted it. He got it. David didn't like to punish him. I just love him too much to punish him. That's just a dumb, dumb, dumb statement. And it's ungodly as well. Well, later on, because David did nothing, Absalom who was Tamar's full brother. They both had the same father and mother. And in those days where they had multiple wives, the families, the full-blood brothers and sisters, tended to kind of stick together. And Absalom, it just incensed him what Amnon did to him. And then over time, as David didn't even address it or do anything, then Absalom started hating his father, started making plans for rebellion against him. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 13. Now a messenger came from David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. That's a terrible thing when you are the king and you have to run from your own son for your life. Why? Because David wouldn't do anything about what Amnon did to Tamar. And why was that? Because he was the kind of parent who just loved his children so much and they would never do anything wrong. He's not a cute little two-year-old anymore, is he? Neither will your children be. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5, we find at the end of David's life, he's on his deathbed, on his deathbed, and another son. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king, and uh, he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. That makes you look important. And his father had not, look at this, rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? He also was very good looking. That's what the Bible also says about Absalom, by the way. And his mother had borne him after Absalom. Then he conferred, this is Adonijah, with Joab, well, that's supposed to be one of David's people, right? 
the son of Zeruiah, and with Abathiar, the priest. Oh, and that's religious. And they followed and helped Adonijah. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, the guy that confronted David after his sin, and Shimei, and Rai, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. And as it goes on, David, on his deathbed, Nathan goes to Bathsheba and says, The Lord said that Solomon is supposed to be the king that follows David. What's this with Adonijah? They're having a coronation ceremony now, and his father's not even dead. And they go into David, and they tell him about all of this, and there he is, this old man who's about to breathe his last. And David makes the statement, Solomon shall be king. And boy, that's encouraging to me because all of a sudden everything changed and Adonijah is running for his life and Solomon, they go ahead and by David's permission make him king before David has even died. Why? Because it means that even if you're an old person, your word still matters. It still carries weight. And far too often as you get older, you feel the need to just, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I don't need the trouble. You need the trouble. And this generation coming up after you needs the trouble. You need to speak and you need to let them know where you stand. But poor David. Poor David. The sword will not depart from your house. Amnon rapes Tamar. Absalom kills Amnon, murders him. Absalom rebels against David. David and his servants have to run for their lives. And now, at the very end, this son that he's never even rebuked, this son that he probably would have said, oh, Adonijah would never do anything like that. Those are called famous last words. He did it. And David had to speak out against his own son, Adonijah. And it would have been far better if David had done this way before. Way before. Number four. Discipline in David's life was considered to be unloving. But I want to just suggest to you that discipline equals devotion to your child. And of course I go to Hebrews 12.6. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. And chastises Every son whom he receives. Now why would the Lord do that? And why is it important that you discipline your child and even to use corporal punishment? Not abuse. Not abuse. Hear me. Because in Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, David's son Solomon, and probably the only son that David took a real interest in and actually did do any teaching or put any time into his life. Solomon writes in twenty-two fifteen of the book of Proverbs, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Well, that's interesting. Instead of saying, Solomon saying, your child's a little angel and they're perfect in every way and they're going to fulfill your life and all of that. No. Your child doesn't have any sense. They're a fool. Now, before we go into the practical side of that, they'll eat anything on the floor and run in traffic and all of that. Let's think about another time when the word fool is mentioned. In Psalm 14:1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they do abominable deeds. You know what Solomon is saying? You better put your child in that category and take your parenting seriously. Your child's not as good as you think they are. In many cases, they've learned to hide. They've learned to deceive. And there will come a point to where they quit listening to you and start listening to their peers. They can do some bad, horrible, evil things. Why is that? Because your child doesn't come out of the womb going, Oh, thank you, Jesus. I surrender to you as Lord. You're my master. You're my king. No, they don't do that. They come out in their depravity. 
selfish, wanting their own way, learning how to manipulate. You have to teach them to obey. You have to teach them to respect authority. And the way they respect the authority of the parent is a good picture of how they're going to respect the authority of God one day. See, that's what David never understood. I just love him too much, and he's so good looking. And what happened? They were going to kill David. They were going to destroy him and everything he had worked for. The fool says in his heart. So the first thing I would think of as a parent is, I've got to keep my child from being a fool, and the fool is the one who says there is no God. Hey, Junior, you can't live for yourself. You can't have your way all the time. You do have to obey. And you do have to do what I say, what the teacher says, if it's right and moral, of course. All of these things are a part of training up a child in the way they should go so they don't do those abominable things. We find in 1 Samuel chapter 15, 23, that rebellion, defiance, we might say, is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. That's the kind of kid you want. We brag about that with our kids. God doesn't take a good view of it, does he? No. And so we let our children be the fool, act the fool, and live as a fool, and live independently of God. And then we go, I don't know what happened to them. I don't know what happened to them. Think about it. Proverbs 29, 15 says, The rod and rebuke give wisdom. You know, you're not supposed to punish your child just because you're mad. Don't do it when you're angry. You're not supposed to do it just because you feel like they slighted you and you're going to show them. That's not what it's about. Look at that. The rod and rebuke give wisdom. I want to make my child wise. This is for them. But a child left to himself, okay, Absalom, right? Amnon, right? Adonijah, right? A child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Well, now that's interesting. Shame to his mother. You know mothers never stop being mothers, right? But I also find something else in that that I've seen so many times. Fathers get to the place where they go, I'm done, you're dead to me. I don't know that a mother ever quite gets to that place. Shaming their own Mother is the way that they live. You're kind of asking for it. David was asking for it. And then Psalm 103 verse 13 says, and don't, don't miss this, as a father pities his children, don't do your discipline for revenge or making them pay or just because your dad did it to you. As a father pities, it's a word of compassion. Have compassion on your children. So the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. He knows our limitations. You need to know your child's limitation too. Did they actually defy you or did they just forget? There is a difference. There is a difference. And Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. I think David was so close to God, enjoyed his worship time, wanted to do so much for God, fought the battles, won the wars, served his country, and he forgot to serve his children, forgot to do what was right and necessary for them. And as they say, the rest is history. Poor David. Poor David, what a way to die, what a way to end up, what a way to have to suffer through it, being respected by everybody but your own family. That doesn't sound like success to me. That sounds like heartache and hurt and shame. And that's the way David had to live because of those things. Disinterest, defilement, delusional about his children and he did not consider discipline to actually be devotion to them that's one of the ways you show love so i would like if you are a parent 
of a child, a grandparent of a child, I would like for you to stand and I would like to pray for you. Because this next generation is facing stuff we didn't face and in ways that we never even thought about facing. And they need you. And we've got to be at our best. Heavenly Father, we pray for our children. Whatever age they may be. Oh God, save those that are lost. Bring rebel prodigals home. And as parents and grandparents, help us to think rightly. To think biblically. And not like David did. Thank you that you expose the errors of the heroes of the Bible. Because we can learn from that. And I thank you, Lord, that didn't mean David's whole life was washed out. But, boy, this was an important part. And we need to learn from it. Give us grace. Give us wisdom. Let us think. And let us love you and love our children and grandchildren very, very deeply. Give us wisdom. And especially for grandparents. The wisdom to know when to step in and when not to. Those times when they need to say something and those times when they need to pray. We don't always know where the boundaries are, Lord. Help us. And I pray for young parents, especially with the younger children. I pray for them that they wouldn't fall for everything the world and social media say. To the word of God. And we pray, Lord, we would do this because you love us. You sent your son to die for us on the cross, pay for our sins, bear the wrath of God. And he conquered death, hell, and the grave. And all who put their faith in him as Lord and Savior and surrender to him receive the gift of eternal life. And they become a part of your family. And you discipline your children. Let us learn so that we can be like you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Put it down.